AT&T ThreatTrack is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. Hello, welcome to AT&T Threat Track for March 10th, 2015. This program provides network security highlights, discussion, and countermeasures for cyber threats. Today we're joined by John Hogeboom. <laughs> As if I've never met you before. <laughs> Today we're joined by John Hogeboom. Welcome, John. Thank you. And Matt Kaiser, How's it Matt, going? welcome. And uh, we're kind of the sort of the regular local crew here today. And I, I guess Jim's perhaps out on a training exercise right now. I think so. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I'm Brian Rexrode, and uh, let's jump right into it. And uh, you know, I guess uh, we're always talking about manipulation of code and things like this. Who would have thought just flipping a bit could make the difference, right? Well. This one is, is particularly fascinating to me. This uh, it's an attack they're calling the the Rowhammer bug. All right. Now this um, the Google um, Project Zero team just released an advisory about this, and they're building off of work done by uh, researchers at Carnegie Mellon and mm -hmm. Intel Labs. Um, the idea behind this is that there's physical effects within memory, in particular DDR3 DRAM chips, mm -hmm. where when you read from memory. It can cause slight disturbances in adjoinment memory because the, the scale at which you're operating is so small that you start having these weird electrical leaking effects around mm -hmm. them. So the idea of row hammering is basically reading from memory adjacent to memory you'd like to influence repeatedly to see if you can actually cause bits to flip. Mm -hmm. Now it seems that they've found a way to fairly well repeatedly do this and chain it into an actual exploit against different platforms. They come up with two exploits. So the first one is against Google's native client, which mm -hmm. is basically a way that Chrome can run native code, you know, like x86, mm -hmm. much faster. So it behaves almost like an x86 processor in in you know in a program. Mm -hmm. and it's got its own sandbox. So to prevent sort of you know the regular kinds of attacks you would expect, turns out they found a way to bypass that sandbox using some really clever um, modifications to jump calls in mm -hmm. memory, relying on those bit flips to actually change a jump call from one location to another one outside of bounds of what the sandbox would normally expect, and right. there you go, now you're outside of the sandbox. The second one is against um, just a Linux kernel, and it seems that you can modify the page table entries, which is basically, I don't know how our viewers know, if they know about you know, virtual memory, physical memory, but mm -hmm. basically you're, you're modifying where the, the computer expects to find different memory locations. So you can give the program control over its own page table, and then it gets to find where it gets to call. And mm -hmm. then it's pretty much game over. So, I mean, this is, this is, I find it most cool because this is physical, like, this is physics right. causing yeah. exploitation of software. Yeah, they, I mean, you know, there are a lot of things about this that I can, I, I guess I can relate to a little bit. First of all, it's it's really kind of a very similar to sort of a buffer overflow type of attack where you're trying to inject code in a place where you didn't expect it to be, right? So sort of jump to a new place. There, it's basically flipping a bit so it changes where a jump goes to. It's very similar to what a, a buffer overflow is trying to do as well. To try to get something so it's jump into a place where it's executing code that it otherwise would not have executed, right? And uh, you know, one of the things I find very interesting about you mentioned the electrical effect, effects. That's really, as you said, the geometries of the memory elements are getting so much smaller 
And really, a DRAM is just a little capacitor. Mm -hmm. It's just a little place where you, you store charge. If when you go to read that thing, you're just measuring just a few electrons. I, I'm not sure about the number at this point, but it's you know it's like handfuls of of electrons that are they're basically stored in that capacitor, and to decide whether it's a one or zero. So if you can, based on the proximity of those, get some of those injected into a neighboring memory cell. Mm -hmm there's a possibility of getting that, that type of an error to occur. And it's really a, a kind of a cool thing. We were talking about earlier how memory checking, the, the error correction codes, right. were actually reintroduced, I think, on the order of maybe about 10 years ago. They had basically gotten rid of them, but years ago they used to have those, and it was partly because the memory elements were actually encased in, or the chips were encased in ceramic, and the ceramic had some radioactivity associated with it. And so a little, you know, uh, alpha particle or something could get in there and actually change what the, the memory was. And so in order to protect against that, they'd have a parity bit mm -hmm. to see if there was an error or something. They didn't have the correction, but at least the, uh, the parity associated with it. Very cool stuff. Yeah. And uh, so what do you think? Is, it, is this something we need to be really concerned about right now? I think it's it just came out as of, you know, today's taping. And mm -hmm. I, they've, they've provided not exploit code, but test code to show, to, to determine whether or not the memory modules that are in your machine are susceptible to these bit flips. Mm -hmm. Now, they, they've tested about, I want to say around 30 different combinations of vendor and, and memory, and, and it's, it's not clear that this is a huge widespread problem. There may be certain platforms that have to be worried about. DDR4 is not susceptible to this. Uh, memory with ECC is less susceptible. There's still a chance that if you manage to flip more than one bit, that the ECC is not going to be able to compensate for that because I think it only really checks for the probability. Parity, right? Yeah, the probability of being able to detect it goes down as the number of bits flip goes up. But it's still. Uh, I'm not sure if they use one bit or or multiple bits associated with that. But it's. Uh, Did they say why? DDR4 is not susceptible versus DDR3. What what is it about DDR3? Is it something about the physical aspects of it that I'm not really clear on that myself. Um, all I know is that somehow DDR4 is able to compensate against this. Hmm. Okay. I'd be interested to find out the actual reason. Yeah, I was wondering myself. if somebody knew about it and maybe they engineered that in or something, but I don't know. You know there's a possibility there. Correction coding is stronger. Again, as geometries continue to get smaller. They're uh, putting more protections in place for this kind of thing, this eventuality. You know, um, actually in disk drives, they've done something very similar, added air correction coding that didn't exist previously because the geometries are getting so much smaller right, right. and you, you'd expect that there's going to be some probability of, uh, you know, some sort of an error. Mm -hmm. And it, it kind of brings to mind our own minds, you know, they're, you know, one of the, I guess, the most complex computing platform that exists. but. It has errors all the time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. There are just so many things going on that it, they, they get jumbled up. And I think this is just that, you know, that next step in the evolution of things where things, you know, you have to build in tolerance for errors as a part of the, uh, of the part of the platform. And this is a case where they've demonstrated how it could potentially be used for malicious purposes. Mm -hmm. Mind manipulation. <laughs> well, being a software developer, you should always code in for the possibility of errors into your code yeah. to check for unexpected oh, that's true too. You know, things to occur. The question would be, do we have to start coding to protect against errors in our own hardware at this point? Oh, I mean, yeah. Do you have to double validate everything you've saved to memory when you pull it back out is really what you, you'd save to right. memory in the well, first place? Well, I guess it, within reason, right? You don't want to mm -hmm. sacrifice performance too right. much you know, uh, yeah. to have a perfect situation with your error correction. but. Mm -hmm. 
you know, some degree, I would say. You yes. should be able to rely on the hardware. I mean, right. it, it's, uh, in fact, it, I mean, ultimately, you want to be able to trust what's coming out of it. Otherwise, what, what can you trust? That's really Well, I mean, I would core. put that at the hardware level, that kind of like, you know, the firmware or something would be checking for mm -hmm. whether there's an error. Not in my software, would I be not trusting the memory that's in my machine? I wouldn't, you know, if I'm writing something in Java or whatever, but, uh, you know, in general, I'm just saying code in general should always have error checking for whatever it's doing with its own stuff. Yeah. There's one more um, parallel that I thought was kind of interesting, single bit flips. There was um, research done a couple years back on single bit flips in DNS. I don't know if you remember that one, but it turns out that you know if you take a popular domain and, and occasionally somewhere along the transmission line, a bit will be flipped when a DNS request and it becomes like fugle.com instead of Google. <laughs> if you go ahead and you register fugle.com, you will get a significant amount of traffic that's destined for that other domain. And yeah, there's okay. really not much to be done for that. I mean, you can right. set up your own little traffic collector and simply because of a single bit, you're going to start getting yeah, it's, a, it's actually traffic. an interesting one because the uh, likelihood of getting a bit error in transmission where it's gone through a lot of systems along the way is, is, uh, is greater. In fact, the whole you know, IP network internet is based on sort of a best effort delivery activity with the expectation that some of those packets aren't really going to get there without some kind of a munging. But DNS uses UDP. It doesn't have the, uh, it has some header error checks, but it doesn't necessarily validate that the packet itself was, that's left to the end system, and I don't think DNS did a whole lot to make sure that, <laughs> that it got delivered without uh, some. And again, that's a performance reason, probably. You know, that's yeah. why they use it's UDP. Yeah, absolutely. Completely for performance aspects. Yeah. So that's why we overlay it with SSL certificates to make sure that we're talking to who <laughs> we think we're talking to and that the domains match up and, and, uh, then ultimately right. put encryption on top of that, which helps to and maintain the integrity. The <laughs> <laughs> you pay for it in performance. That's right. It's mm -hmm. a, there's no free lunch. No. And speaking of no free lunch. Oh yeah, nice. good segue. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the story I was uh, covering today is a little bit more pedestrian than Matt's story. Uh, it's not as brainy. Uh, clever. I have to say clever. Well, clever. <laughs> Probably not unexpected. If you're a bad yeah. guy, this is a great idea. So a lot of people uh, have probably observed uh, certain websites that they go to and they try to view the source that it's obfuscated. A lot of people, when they um, develop their own uh, code for their website, they want to protect it from people just viewing the source, taking it, using it for their own purposes, mm -hmm. especially JavaScript and whatnot. So there's uh, a lot of code obfuscation services out there, programs that'll obfuscate your JavaScript or even your page in JavaScript so that it renders, if you go look at it, it's just a jumble of JavaScript. You can't really understand it. It's a lot of obfuscated code paths, very hard to follow, but JavaScript knows what to do. When it reads it, executes, it can unpack it and render it properly in your browser. Mm -hmm. Similar probably in a way to, you know, Java it uses a, um, it's not an obfuscator, but it's a, it packs it so that it's, right. um, it's, it's not uh, easily readable. It's not like a text kind of thing. Mm -hmm. In any event, somebody out there figured out a way or you know, thought about it and said, well, why don't we offer some free code obfuscators and people can obfuscate their code, but when they do that, we're gonna bundle in a little extra something in there. So the problem is, is when you do that and you take all of your code that's easily readable, you obfuscate it through this tool, now you get back this jumbled mess that you have no idea what it's really doing. It's not exactly um, open source anymore, is it? No. 
So <laughs> you're open to you, your right. own code. <laughs> yeah, you, your own code is not even readable anymore. Right. Um, but you could take that, put it you know, on your website. If a browser hits it, it gets all deobfuscated, rendered in the browser. But even if you do a view source, you're just going to see the jumbled mess. Yeah. So, but they were able to determine this, uh, some bad actors out there have been, uh, when they go to obfuscate your code, they slip a little bit of their own stuff in there that's going to inject ads or spam or other pop-ups mm -hmm. uh, along the way. So now, when your visitors visit your website, they're getting your website, but also another little nugget down there that's getting, uh, you know, pushing spam and whatnot mm -hmm. to your um, uh, Now, to as your a website browser. developer, I guess there's an opportunity to find this out while you're doing testing, but otherwise you're dependent on, you know, somebody actually complaining about it or something right. along those lines, right? The other interesting aspect is they did some examination of, well, how much of this bad obfuscated code is out there that's injecting this bad stuff into the pages. And they notice that there's at least a few people who write like plugins for WordPress, mm -hmm. which is a common thing. So I've got a WordPress plugin that I wrote. I want to protect it. I want to be able to sell it. You know, maybe I charge people five bucks or something for it to deploy it onto their WordPress website. Um, so I don't want them to just be able to read it and just dump it themselves um, or make modifications to it. So uh, there are a few of those out there where these plugins are being distributed with this obfuscated, you know, they've been obfuscated, um, but the developer who developed it doesn't know that there's this bad injection that's been stuck in there. So uh, something to be aware of, um, yeah. not only in your own code when you try to use these obfuscations, but if you use some of these uh, content management systems like WordPress and you're pulling in plugins from other places, uh, you might want to make sure that this plugin is trustable uh, mm -hmm. Because even though the person who wrote it might be trustable, he might have tried to obfuscate his code so that you can't see it to protect himself. But um, he didn't know that he was getting had by some of these guys right. that are you know, doing this bad activity with their obfuscations. It sounds like a, time, uh, a, a point where apparently they didn't even have a desire to be transparent about what they were trying to do. It is, um, I mean, ultimately, it comes right down to that discussion about there is no free lunch here. I mean, right. these folks, they're trying to provide a service. They're trying to earn some money as a part of their service. The question is, are they letting you know that they're earning money as a part of their service, you know, through whatever means and how, they, and, and how they're conveying that to you? But, right, right. You know, it's, uh, I guess, it, you know, ultimately, it's, uh, if, you, if you get something for free, you should be paying some attention to what the motivation is behind these, uh, these folks. There really is no free lunch. They've, they have, they've spent time and effort putting together these things or providing a service. They have to pay for it somehow. Yep. They have to feed their families perhaps, but you know, again, it becomes a matter of transparency. Did it, did it say in the fine print perhaps that they were gonna be sticking those ads in there? Right, and who reads the fine print? <laughs> you know, when they give you like 80 pages. There's an awful lot of fine right. print going on these days, yeah. Right. <laughs> so, speaking of fine print. Uh, yeah. <laughs> So this is, this is a bit of a two-parter. Um, there's just two articles that I found particularly interesting. Yeah. Uh, the first is an article by, by Didier Stevens. I hope I'm pronouncing his name right. He's been looking into Microsoft Office vulnerabilities and exploits for a long time. Mm -hmm. He recently found a campaign where instead of using the regular Office extension, you know, a .xls or, or um, xlsx now, that's mm -hmm. right, the new ones, that's part of the point. Certain XML files, you know, you will, if you open it up in a Windows machine with Office installed, it'll just treat it like an Office document and try and do its best to open it as a Word file or mm -hmm. you know, a spreadsheet or something like that. And it turns out that when it does that, it'll try and unpack certain portions of it and then it, there'll be uh, Visual Basic code in there mm -hmm. that'll reach out, grab a, a payload, and execute it. So 
this is an XML file, and mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's, as far as most people would be concerned, XML is nothing but you know, structured text. You build the right structured text, you feed it to the right program, you've got yourself an exploit. Right, it's a matter of how the programs interpret whatever they're, they're, they're consuming. You know, I, I, every time we have a discussion on these kinds of things, I can't help but think back to the, great, the good old days when, with the von Neumann architecture where there was a very <laughs> clear distinction between code and data. Yep. And as soon as we went down this path of kind of blurring the two, that you know, basically a file name tells a program how to execute on something. It, became, it made data something other than just data. And so we have this whole entanglement and oppor opportunities for uh, taking advantage of it. Well, actually we at AT&T have an even earlier prior art for that when we had signaling and, uh, and voice calls mm -hmm. in the same, you know, on the same phone lines. Yeah. But that's when uh, that's Redbox we went through a lot of trouble, in fact, yeah, yep. and it, right. it, to uh, create the SS7 network to be able to do all the control stuff on, out of right. band. Out yep. of band. And exactly. To be able to uh, get away from it. It was, the, it was the tones. I mean, still the end user dialing was still on, in band effectively, the DTMFs and you know the click dials or whatever, but mm -hmm. uh, ultimately in the, the network itself, the was signaling all, was, yeah. uh, was done out of band. And uh, you know, the internet doesn't really have an out of band network. It's uh, it, basically cry, tries to create channels within the network itself. So, uh, it, you know, it's possible to control these things. It's just a matter of, um, you need some sort of a structure to work within. And uh, I guess my feeling is that, that some of that structure is really kind of, it's be, almost become too flexible. You almost really kind of have to go back to some basic, basic rules yeah. <laughs> about how to create systems and architect them in a way that they can be more secure. So. In the meantime, we're going to stumble through. So that was the first article. Yeah. The second one is very, I think, very similar. Bitdefender found a, a crypto wall campaign that mm. was distributing an attachment that was a CHM, which is a compiled HTML file, which Windows uses as help files. Mm -hmm. And they're basically HTML pages that you can open up in, in a, a very specific browser, but it can still run JavaScript. And from there, that's where you have problems where JavaScript runs, it goes out and grabs another file mm -hmm. and executes it. So it was, it was two stories in a pretty small range of time that both had to do with sort of trustworthy yeah, file types. Of things. Yeah, and I remember yeah. back, you know, some of the early pieces of malware were conveyed as screensavers, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and they, st they still are. We still occasionally see yeah. .ser files. Yeah, absolutely. So and we've seen even um, in like the doc and XLS space, the whole notion of VB script coming more into play. Like they used to do that a long time ago and they went away. Mm -hmm. And now, within the past year or so, we're seeing more evidence of that. And they just, even though your Word, um, you know, Microsoft Word protection says, hey, you know, there's a script in here. Are you sure you want to click it? The guys, have, you know, the bad actors have figured out, hey, put in a big arrow here that says, in order to see this text, you know, click on the enable scripts button right here above this screen here. So a lot of people click it. So you got to be, you know. Yeah. Any, any, any program, like you said, any program that's reading a file in, no matter what that file is, it could be Notepad. You know, people think a text file could be benign, and for the most part it is. Notepad's somewhat bulletproof, but mm -hmm. it's a program that's interpreting data, and if you could give it just the right amount of stuff that that program doesn't know how to ingest whatever it's reading, you could mm -hmm. hit a buffer overflow like we talked about and get some arbitrary code execution to occur. Yeah. So even though it's not intended to be a scripted language, um, you could put that in if you can trick the program that's reading it, because pretty much everything is read by a program. Yep. Yeah. That reminds me, there's a really good book on the subject of, of exploit writing called uh, The Bug Hunter's Diary, 
and there's a whole bunch of really like mind-blowing examples. Like I think one of the bugs in there that he exploits is he feeds a specially crafted video file to VLC player mm -hmm. to cause it to, to crash and then build an exploit around that. So it's basically any program that takes any input, mm -hmm. whether or not it's you know text files or video or, or who knows what. Mm -hmm. There's a possibility that you're going to be able to craft something that'll change the way that it behaves. Yeah, absolutely true. And it's always uh, looking for those boundaries that weren't considered. Right. You know, like a frame size of zero. Yep. <laughs> right. That uh, just, you know just sends the thing into some berserk mode, and if you can control the berserkness, it becomes a, an exploit. So, uh, so we'll shift from exploits into uh, something, I guess, uh, really a little more innocuous. We'll take a look at the internet weather for the last week or so here. And uh, we hadn't reported on this sort of activity recently, uh, so, but it, there is uh, sort of an increase in it. This actually shows up as scan sources on port 17788 UDP. This is associated with PP Stream, which is uh, basically a, like a point-to-point -point stream, streaming protocol or, or application, I guess it is popular for Chinese programming, apparently. So we see an increase in the number of sources, the number of participants that are taking place in that. I suspect that what this is, either is something of, of significant interest that, that's popped up and you've got more viewers that are, uh, are partaking of it, or perhaps there was a sort of a shift in the server infrastructure that's associated with this uh, particular service. But in any case, there seems to be an increase in that activity. Uh, it appears to be innocuous. If you see that on your network and you're concerned about it, you have to make some decisions about whether that's acceptable on your enterprise network, for example. And uh, there are some uh, pointers on the internet about how you can control this type of activity on your network. Port 17788 is one of those uh, ports that it depends on. Next item here is uh, bytes on source port 161 UDP. That's simple network management protocol. The theme here is this uh, appears to be, from my memory and experience, uh, one of the largest reflective denial service attacks that I've seen using SNMP. This particular one happens to have been going on for a few days, so it's, it's large in that sense, but it's also large in terms of the number of, uh, the amount of bytes that it's generating on the order of uh, gigabits per second. I think most of the cases we've looked at in the past have been way down in the uh, maybe 100 megabits per second or something like that. And you see some of these examples in the past. I guess there's one that went up to about four gigabits per second, but. Well, you're um, looking at bits per hour here, though. Oh, yeah, actually, uh, maybe we should Although, correct that. That's a good point. So it is uh, relatively smaller than that. So good point, John. But in any case, uh, it is one of the larger attacks that we've seen on this, uh, in this activity. Happens to be targeting a, uh, a site in China, and uh, so it's not, uh, you know, an immediate threat to, to uh, within the United States, but certainly uh, one to be, uh, you know, considering the vectors of uh, denial of service attacks. That's pretty Thanks well for the sustained, too. I yeah, mean, it's well sustained. Uh, yeah. It's a long duration. Longer mm -hmm. than they, we usually see attacks go on yeah, for. Much larger than usual. So this probably is in the hundreds of megabits per second once we uh, uh, account for the fact that it's really showing per hour. The top 10 most pro ports here, we see uh, there's been a shift here. That is, uh, we're seeing port 22 on the top. We had been seeing port 23 on the top. So uh, port 22 followed by port 23, then 443, which has moved up significantly, relatively speaking, and then 1900 UDP. We're going to look at, take a little closer look at port 443, by the way. 1900 UDP, that's associated with reflective denial of service attack activity. 445 TCP, the conficker stuff. 53 UDP, again, probing for uh, DNS or associated with reflective DDoS attack activity. Uh, port 135 TCP, we're still seeing activity on that port, which 
still baffles me that we see that, but it, uh, it apparently uh, continues. And then 1433 TCP, that's uh, probing for Microsoft SQL database. 3389, that's remote desktop protocol, and then 8080 TCP, uh, likely looking for proxies. So taking a little closer look at port 443 TCP, this is a little different than I typically show because this is where the anomaly really shows up. That's in scan packets on port 443 TCP. And it's very unusual to see this type of behavior, but in this particular case, it's really a SYN reflection attack. It appears that the source address is spoofed in this case. They're spraying out uh, SYN packets to a lot of different target addresses and then waiting for the SYN ACK reflections to come back and then actually go to, to the original uh, target associated with this. There are multiple sources and this is one of the first cases I've seen in a long time. And the indicator of this is, uh, sim again, simply, in fact, in a lot of cases what they do is they get SYN resets back. Uh, it doesn't even matter if they get a SYN ACK. <laughs> they can get SYN resets back. And uh, as a consequence, this, uh, this target would be flooded with uh, relatively small packets, but a lot of them because they're repeating this over and over and over again. Looking at the top 10 most sources doing probing, at the top of the list, port 23 TCP, followed by uh, 445 TCP. I tend to skip over the ICMP protocol, by the way, partly because it's, there are a number of contributors to it, and it's not uh, necessarily a good strong indicator unless you actually dig into uh, where that activity is coming from and, uh, and uh, more specific characteristics of it. But uh, again, 27.015 UDP, and then uh, followed by uh, 68.81, uh, that's associated with BitTorrent, if I remember correctly. 1900 UDP, which is uh, that reflective denial service attack activity. And then find the uh, 3159 UDP, which I believe was a proxy protocol. Is that right? Um, I don't remember. Yeah, I, we looked it up a, last time, too, and I, yeah. we, we couldn't remember last time. Tell week. me that's the, the I'm getting mixed up these days. Yeah, I think the it's Vega the Vega Web. Yeah. Vega thing. Web. yeah. All right, so uh, I thought it'd be worth taking a look at, you know, again, a little bit of the history associated with port 23 TCP because it is at the top of the list here. We're looking at 90 days of activity. And again, we're looking at the number of sources. And as you recall, we were, uh, you know, sort of uh, seeing some botnet activity predominantly associated with internet of insecure things, those unmanaged devices that don't have uh, good patching practices and often have default passwords and uh, unfortunately allow these uh, malicious actors that kind of walk into them and use them for bots. The number of sources that are doing the probing is actually down. In fact, the number of probes is down somewhat as well. Uh, it's certainly not gone. There's a significant amount of activity taking place there. We're measuring thousands of sources here, and so we've uh, kind of leveled off at around 40,000 sources at any given time of the day. But it is uh, down relative to what we'd seen over the last 90 days, which is, uh, I think, an encouraging sign. I don't know if there have been some actions to uh, basically deter some of this activity, or if it's just simply that uh, they're laying idle for a while, but uh, nevertheless, less activity than we'd seen previously. And that's our show for today. I'd like to thank you for joining us. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at threattrack at list.att.com. And you can find ThreatTrack on the ATT Tech channel. It's att.com slash threattrack. Uh, it's also available on YouTube and on iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is ATT Security. And I'd like to thank you, Matt. Thanks, John. I enjoyed the conversation today. And uh, I'm Brian Rexford. We'll be back next week with a new episode. And until then, keep your network safe. The views expressed on ATT Threat Track are those of the participants 
and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.